So at first glance, it would appear that Dee Dee Blanchard and her daughter Gypsy Rose were a loving mother and daughter. Gypsy was born prematurely, and as a result, she had the mental capacity of a seven-year-old. She also suffered from a bunch of illnesses, ranging from leukemia, asthma, and muscular dystrophy, to name a few. Dee Dee was constantly taking care of Gypsy Rose. They were kind of famous in the sense that they were featured on the Dr. Phil show, talking about how Gypsy lives her life with her illnesses. It wasn't until Dee Dee Blanchard was found murdered one night, and her daughter missing, that a huge web of lies began to unravel. Welcome to Strange Talk. Blanchard was born Claudine Petrie in Chack Bay, Louisiana in 1967, where she grew up with her family in Golden Meadow. During her childhood, relatives recalled she would occasionally engage in petty theft, often as a retaliation when things did not go her way. At age 24, she became pregnant by Rod Blanchard. He was only 17 at the time. During the pregnancy, they found out they were to be having a girl, so they decided to name her Gypsy Rose because Dee Dee liked the name Gypsy, and Rod was a huge fan of Guns N' Roses. Shortly before Gypsy Rose's birth in 1991, Rod would leave Dee Dee. He felt he was marrying Dee Dee for the wrong reasons. So after Rod left, Dee Dee moved in with her family. Flash forward to when Gypsy Rose was about 7 or 8. Dee Dee is still living at her parents' house with Gypsy. Rod would make an effort to be in Gypsy's life by visiting often. Though he says she would try to separate them and she wouldn't really ever let them be alone together. So one day, Gypsy Rose was riding with her grandfather on his motorcycle when he had a minor accident and Gypsy suffered a leg injury and Didi claimed that because of the severity of the injury, Gypsy would need surgery. Rod and the rest of her family thought Gypsy was fine, but Didi thought differently. After Didi took her to the hospital, they returned back with Gypsy in a wheelchair and said that she can no longer walk due to the accident. Growing up, Gypsy had trouble learning, so Dee Dee felt it was necessary to homeschool her. So Dee Dee took Gypsy out of the second grade. During this time, Rod, Gypsy's father, remarried, while Dee Dee stayed single and moved in with her father and stepmother. While staying at her father's, Dee Dee would get arrested for writing bad checks and some other offenses. Didi's father confronted her after her stepmother was suspicious of Didi because her stepmother became ill shortly after Didi had moved in. Her stepmother thought Didi was poisoning her, so Didi's father forced her to move out. Surprisingly, her stepmother's health returned to normal after Didi left. Didi and Gypsy would move to Slidell in New Orleans, living in public housing with the help of public assistance and Rod's child support payments, which was about $1,200 a month. In Slidell, they would visit various specialists seeking treatment for Gypsy's illnesses. So on one particular doctor's visit, a muscle biopsy showed that in fact Gypsy didn't suffer from muscular dystrophy. But Didi insisted that Gypsy did, and was somehow successful in securing treatment for muscular dystrophy. Now it's 2005, and Hurricane Katrina comes along. 
Dee Dee and Gypsy's apartment was destroyed in the hurricane, so they left and headed to a shelter that was set up for individuals with special needs. After that, Dee Dee and Gypsy moved to Missouri and rented a home in Aurora. Soon the media became aware of Dee Dee and Gypsy's story of what they had endured during the hurricane. There was an outpouring of support for them, and in 2008, Habitat for Humanity built them a new home with a wheelchair ramp, so they were loving life right now. Now things get a little bit more interesting. At another doctor's visit, a pediatric neurologist named Bernardo Flasterstein became suspicious of Dee Dee. After running some tests on Gypsy, he found that she was not suffering from what her mother claims she has, and even told Dee Dee, why does Gypsy not just walk? She doesn't need a wheelchair. Even having Gypsy stand and support her own weight in front of Dee Dee. The plot fucking thickens. Flasterstein then calls up Gypsy's previous doctors, where he learns that Gypsy's original muscle biopsy had came back negative. Flasterstein thought that Dee Dee was suffering from Munchausen by proxy, which is a mental illness where the caretaker of a child, most often the mother, either makes up fake symptoms or causes real symptoms to make it look as though the child is sick. After this, Dee Dee stopped taking Gypsy to see Flasterstein. He didn't report Dee Dee to social services as he was told by other doctors that to treat them with golden gloves and that they doubt the authorities would even believe him. In 2009, however, an anonymous caller told police about Dee Dee and the use of different names and birth dates for herself and Gypsy, and suggested that Gypsy was in better health than Dee Dee let on. Officers investigated the claim, and Dee Dee explained that her reasoning she used misinformation was to make it harder for her abusive ex-husband Rod to find her and Gypsy, and without even following up with Rod, they reported that Dee Dee's story seemed genuine and that Gypsy seems to be mentally handicapped, and the file was closed. On June 14th, friends of Dee Dee noticed that she had posted odd things to her Facebook account. One post said, the bitch is dead. So they began to call her as they felt the bad language was out of character for Dee Dee. When there was no answer from Dee Dee, a few friends drove to her home and knocked. When there was no answer, they were worried, as Dee Dee's car was in the driveway. So they called 911. When police arrived, they had to wait for a search warrant to be issued before they could enter, but they allowed a neighbor to climb inside through a window, where he saw that much of the house was undisturbed and that all of Gypsy's wheelchairs were still in the home. Finally, the search warrant was issued. Police then entered Dee Dee's home and discovered Dee Dee dead in a pool of blood on her bed. She was stabbed over 27 times and left there for 7 days. They also discovered that Gypsy was missing and they believed that whoever murdered Dee Dee had abducted Gypsy and feared the worst because of all of her medications and medical supplies were left behind. In a turn of events, a friend of Gypsy came forward and told police that she may know where Gypsy is and who she may be with, as she had a secret boyfriend whom she met online through Facebook. Police investigated the claim and discovered it to be true and discovered that Gypsy had been involved with a boy named Nicholas Agajan. They would contact each other by way of Facebook, so police contacted Facebook to trace Gajan's IP address from which the posts to Didi's accounts were made, 
and it turned out to be in Wisconsin. The next day, police from Waukesha County raided Godjohn's home where they found both Gypsy and Nicholas. They charged Nicholas Godjohn with murder and felony criminal action. The news that Gypsy was safe was great news and relief for friends and family. But in announcing the news, Greene County Sheriff Jim Arnott said in a press conference, things are not always as they appear. Soon the media learned the truth about the Blanchards' lives. Gypsy Rose had never been sick and had been able to walk. Her mother, Dee Dee, had for years been making Gypsy fake her illnesses by way of abuse. I've seen a few interviews from before the truth came out and Gypsy was forced by her mother to speak in a childlike voice. Dee Dee would shave Gypsy's head to give off the appearance of chemo. For years, Gypsy claimed she wanted to tell people about what her mother was doing, but she was afraid. In interviews after her mother's murder, she was asked, why didn't you say anything? She explained that her mother's control was so much so that whenever they were in public, whether it was talking to doctors or in interviews, Dee Dee would hold her hand. And if she said anything that gave the slightest hint that she was not suffering from anything, she would squeeze her hand to signal she's doing something wrong. During the trial, prosecutor Dan Patterson called the case extraordinary and unusual. And in July of 2015, Gypsy accepted a plea bargain and was sentenced to 10 years in prison while Nicholas Godjohn was convicted of first-degree murder. His sentencing is scheduled to be in February of 2019. So that was the tale of Dee Dee and Gypsy Rose Blanchard. Dee Dee suffered from a chosen by proxy which I explained what that mental illness is and it's unfortunate because it was started off as a seemingly loving mother-daughter relationship a caring mother taking care of her sick child what just keeping a dark secret for years by way of abuse and force it's a very sad tale and if you want to know more about this case go ahead and look up the HBO documentary which is a really good documentary called Mommy Dead and Dearest that's where I got a lot of my information from. So go ahead and look that up if you're curious to see the actual way they live their life and everything in more detailed um, case of Dee Dee and Gypsy Rose Blanchard. But stay tuned because I have another tale that's actually going to be told by my fiance. And keeping with the theme of Machasin by proxy, this is the case of Mary Beth Tenning, which is the first case that was ever recorded of Munchausen by proxy. So stay tuned. Hey everyone, this is Yolanda and uh, I'm Ernie A's fiance. So um, today I'm going to tell you guys the story of Mary Beth Tinning.
So here we go. In 1987, Mary Beth Tinning was arrested and convicted for the murder of her ninth child, four-month-old daughter Tammy Lynn, in 1985. And on August 21st, 2018, she was released on parole. Mary Beth Tinning was born on September 11, 1942. She worked as a nursing, nursing assistant. She met and married her husband, Joseph Tinning, in 1965, and they had their first child in 1967. This case is considered to be one of the worst cases of Manchelsen by proxy syndrome to date. I'm sure Ernie A. has already explained to you what uh, Munchausen by proxy is, but if you need uh, more information on that, it's basically a mental condition where the primary caregiver of a child deliberately makes their, their child sick or fixed syndromes to gain sympathy from family and medical professionals. It is believed what causes this condition um, is because the abuser was abused themselves as, as children. Now, what makes this case so odd is not only was her four-month-old daughter killed, but she had eight other children who died prior from 1973 to 1985 that she was not convicted for. None of the children lived past the age of four, including her adopted child. Mary Beth's first daughter, Jennifer, died on January 3, 1972. She was only eight days old. The autopsy listed the cause of death as acute meningitis. Since Jennifer never lived, never left the hospital, Mary Beth was not questioned about her death. About three weeks later, on January 20th, her two-year-old son, Joseph Tinning, was pronounced dead on arrival at Ellis Hospital in New York City. No autopsy was performed on Joseph, but doctors pronounced his cause of death as a viral infection and seizure disorder. Six weeks after the death of her son Joseph, Mary Beth's four-year-old daughter Barbara died on March 20th. Autopsy surgeons could not determine the exact cause of death, so they ruled it as, as cardiac arrest. Barbara's death was the first reported to police, but they closed the case after speaking to the hospital physicians. The following year on Thanksgiving Day in 1973, Mary Beth gave birth to her son, Timothy. Three weeks later, Mary Beth, Mary Beth brought him into the same hospital lifeless. She told the doctors she found him dead in his crib. Doctors did not find anything wrong with him medically, so they determined the, case to, uh, the cause of death to SIDS. Two years later, in March of 1975, Mary Beth gave birth to her fourth child, Nathan. In September of that same year, Mary Beth once again showed up at the hospital with her baby in her, in her arms lifeless. She told doctors she was driving when she noticed her son was not breathing in the back seat. Again, there seemed to be no medical explanation of the cause of death by doctors, so they ruled it as SIDS. In 1978, Mary Beth and her husband made arrangements to adopt the child. During the same year, she became pregnant again. In August, Mary Beth and her husband received their adopted child named Michael. Two months later, on October 29th, she gave birth to her daughter, Mary Frances. In January of 1979, Mary Beth rushed into the hospital again, holding Mary in her arms, telling her doctors she had a seizure at home. The staff in the hospital were able to revive her. 
The following month, Mary Beth came into the emergency room holding Mary in her arms lifeless. Mary was brain dead. She told doctors she found Mary unconscious and did not know what happened to her. The doctor ruled it as SIDS. After Mary's death, uh, Mary Beth once again became pregnant. On November 19th, she gave birth to her seventh child, Jonathan. In March of 1980, she appeared in the emergency room of St. Clair's Hospital with an unconscious baby. Like his sister, Mary, doctors were able to revive him. Because of the family history, Jonathan was sent to Boston Hospital to get thoroughly examined. The doctors could not determine why he stopped breathing and he was sent home with his mom. Several days later, Mary Beth returned to the hospital with him and he was brain dead. Jonathan died on March 24, 1980. On March 2, 1981, Mary Beth showed up at her pediatrician's office with Michael wrapped in a blanket who at the time was only three years old. He was unconscious. Since Michael was adopted, the theory of the cause of deaths of her other children as being a genetic disorder was ruled out. On August 22, 1985, Mary Beth gave birth to her eighth and last child, Tammy Lynn. On December 19th, Cynthia, uh, Cynthia Walker, who was Mary Beth's neighbor, received the frantic phone call from Mary Beth. Cynthia walked to the home. When she arrived, she found Tammy lying on the, on the changing table lifeless. She was pronounced dead at the hospital. After the death of her youngest daughter, Tammy Lynn, Mary Beth confessed to New York State investigators that she smothered Tammy to death when she, could, when she wouldn't stop crying. She also confessed to killing two of her other children. Dr. Michael Baden, a forensic pathologist who worked with prosecutors on the case, reported uh, Mary Beth is responsible for a serial killing of babies. He believes Mary Beth enjoyed the sympathy she received after the death of each of her children, as well as the fact that she didn't get punished for it. It is said at each of the children's funerals, Mary, Mary Beth seemed happy and chatty. She didn't, she didn't seem that she lost a child. After the death of Tammy Lynn, Mary Beth was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. A chief medical examiner working on the case advised that it was impossible for a family to lose three to four children to SIDS. It was also mentioned that babies do not turn blue like Mary Beth Mary Beth's children had. It was in fact a case of homicidal asphyxia. The babies had most likely been smothered. On July 17, 1987, Mary Beth was found guilty of murder in the second degree of her daughter, Tammy Lynn. The bodies of Timothy and Nathan were exhumed, but no solid evidence could be found to support the charges. So charges were dropped. Mary Beth was sentenced to 20, lives, to 20 years to life in prison. She was eligible for, for parole in January of 2009, but was denied. In 2011, she was denied parole again. She said, after the deaths of my children, I just lost it. I became a damaged, worthless piece of person. And when my daughter was young, in my state of mind at the time, I just believed that she was going to die. So I just did it. She appeared for parole a third time in 2013 and, when, and was denied again in 2015. 
On July 21st, 2018, she was released on parole. Now, it just baffled me to know that it took nine children to die under the supervision of the same caregiver or person for it to finally stop. The system failed and justice was not served in the end. She was let free for ending the lives of innocent children who could not protect themselves. Where was a father while all of this occurred? Did he know any information on how the children died? In the 30 years that Mary Beth was behind bars, her husband Joseph stood by her side. He visited her regularly, and now that she has been released on parole, they are living together. So, I hope you guys enjoyed those episodes. I'm sorry for the background noise. I have my daughter uh, right now, so I'm. she's watching her favorite cartoon, Puppy Dog Pals. Say hi. Okay, she's being shy. She doesn't want to play. She's playing with all her new toys that she got from her birthday party. Uh, it was supposed to be a small little birthday party, but because I'll be honest... I had to throw a birthday party for her one year, for her for when she turned one. And it was just very stressful. And um, luckily, my sister was awesome enough to throw this one for her. It was supposed to be a tiny one. But... Uh, it turned out to be a little bit of a bigger thing than what it was supposed to be. It wasn't super big, but it was nice nonetheless. So I appreciate my uh, sister throwing that for my daughter. Um, you know, because I don't really care to do the parties because it's very stressful dealing with all the little kids and everything. Maybe I'm just a fucking bad person, but that's just my take on that but it was a success nonetheless so thank you again to my sister for throwing that for them and thank you to everybody else who helped with uh getting that together um but other than that so uh saturday uh december the first we took her to the san diego zoo and that was the first time i ever been to the zoo and that was her first time ever going to the zoo um so yeah it was pretty cool um but it was a bit chilly so like i said again i'm sorry for all the background noise she's playing with all her new toys and everything but like I said, uh, the zoo was pretty cool. It was a little different. Uh, not different, but I mean, what's the word? A lot of the animals were like huddled up in their <laughs> caves and stuff because it was really cold. And a lot of the animals were from Africa, so they didn't really, they're not used to this type of weather. So yeah, I thought that was a bit interesting. But so that was the Munchausen by Proxy episode. <coughs> Pardon me. That was Munchausen by Proxy episode that involved Dee Dee Blanchard and Mary Beth Tenning. Uh, so I hope you guys both liked the stories and found it somewhat interesting. So, I mean, that's pretty crazy to just have that type of disorder. Um, to just be like that. I wonder if that could, if I wonder, because it seems to mainly affect women. I wonder if that has to do with something along the lines of uh like some type of postpartum psychosis um so it'd be interesting to find that out but if you guys enjoy strange talk uh go ahead and follow me at strange talk podcasts on instagram if you want to send me an email to discuss those various topics or there's a topic you want me to see and possibly do an episode of you can do so at strange talk podcast at outlook.com 
and if you listen to me on Apple Podcasts, which seems to be the popular platform that you know a lot of people listen to, go ahead and give me five star review if you enjoyed today's episode. That helps me out a ton. Uh, I'm going to be making a Patreon pretty soon, so you know, hopefully, I get support from you guys because this show would not be possible without you guys. So, oh, now you want to say hi? Say hi. Say hi. No, now you're being shy again. Okay. So yeah, go ahead. Um, and I will let you guys. So make sure you guys are following me on Instagram at Change Talk Podcast, so you guys can keep up to date on new episodes I'm working on and everything. It. I'm pretty sure you guys are wondering why I never did the normal Lopez um, and Anatoly McCurve. For I'm probably uh, fuck his last name because I don't remember. It's some Polish or Russian last name. Um, Norma Lopez, there wasn't really a lot of information on her, so the episode wasn't going to be that long. And I'm trying to keep my episodes at least 20 minutes or more. So I'm trying to push for that. I don't really want to put out 10 minutes anymore unless it's, um, unless I state otherwise that it's a mini episode. But, uh, so yeah, that's why I never did the Norma Lopez Norma Lopez was <laughs> Norma Lopez one. Uh, so sorry about that if you guys were looking forward to that one, but... Uh, there wasn't really a lot of information. Uh, she unfortunately was abducted, sexually assaulted, and left for dead in Marina Valley, California. Um, she was abducted where she used to walk from high school. So I'm kind of doing it right now, but that's really all the information there is out there of it. I'm pretty sure there's probably another podcast that's way better than mine that probably has an episode of her. If not, uh, who knows? Because to be honest with you, I tried researching a lot of information. I just found the same stuff, and it only... It was only like five minutes worth of an episode and maybe i'll do it then and it'll just be a mini episode but like i said uh follow me on instagram at strange talk podcast to keep up to date on the various topics i'm going to be discussing and also you know you guys will get a notification like you guys will know when i launch my patreon so hopefully you guys will support me and support the podcast and be part of the community that is strange talk podcast so uh thank you guys hope you enjoyed the episode don't forget to rate it um that helps me out a ton and as always stay strange